Hello, I'm Dale Gentry, and welcome to the Disciple Science Podcast. I am an ecologist and a Christian. I find great joy and harmony in my life exploring science, studying birds, and in following Jesus. I started Disciple Science to help people connect with God through nature. I'm glad you're here to join me and occasional guests as we explore the intersection of science and Christian faith. And now, let's get on with the podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Tony Jones. Tony is an author and a former pastor, but he's known primarily through his podcast as The Reverend Hunter. Tony has a unique story in ministry and media, and most notably, he found time in nature and specifically hunting to be a place of peace and healing when his life was full of stress. I found Tony on accident through a tweet he sent about the Boundary Waters uh, Wilderness Area in northern Minnesota. I was intrigued by his handle as the Reverend Hunter, found that he had a podcast, and got kind of hooked on his conversations with people from all walks of life and how hunting and fishing and time in the outdoors plays an important role in their life and sometimes in their faith. Now, I haven't spent much time exploring these topics, but I think there's a lot to examine as we see how hunting and fishing bring us face-to-face with the death that is both abundant in the natural world, but is also necessary to bring about life. I hope you enjoy exploration of those and others' topics in this conversation with the Reverend Hunter, Tony Jones. We are uh, fortunate today to be joined by the Reverend Hunter, Tony Jones, who is the host of the Reverend Hunter podcast and my fellow Minnesota compatriot. Uh, And we are going to have some great conversations today talking about our faith and connecting with God in the outdoors and uh, some of his background in the world of, uh, of hunting and church ministry and thinking about the nature of uh of where those things can overlap. So Tony, thanks for joining us today. It's great. It's to great you. to be here. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the invitation. Well, you've got a, a real uh, interesting background and I'm going to, I'll just sort of reveal my own uh, knowledge that, that is limited and that I've gotten hooked on your own podcast and listened to it for the past seven or eight months. And so I, I probably am missing some of your background, but I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with us a little bit about how you got into um, ministry and, and, uh, and then after we're done with that, I also want to, you know, hear about your upbringing and your exposure to the outdoors and, and hunting and, and what led you to your identity as the Reverend Hunter. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for asking. And again, thanks for inviting me. I, Grew up in Edina, Minnesota, suburb of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and uh, grew up in a church-going family. We we went to a church. You know, it's funny. You think about it. You look back in on the seven in the seventies <laughs> and early eighties, and I mean, I know there were the divides between like evangelical and mainline, but I was not aware of them, and it, those were not the that was not the language my parents used. Yeah. When I got to college and was briefly involved in campus crusade before I was excommunicated, um, for having an unteachable spirit, (laughs) I truly, truly, that's what they told me. Really? Let's come back to that. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I never heard a term evangelical before. It was just not right. You know, we just went to church right? and there were like the Catholics and the Protestants and we did stuff with all the Catholic churches and there were, there were, of course, the, did, did you read the Frank Peretti novels? No, oh, no, I didn't, but I was aware of them, but I managed you're, to stay clear. Of them. You're probably more the age of the left behind novels, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep, yep. So I'm, I'm probably 10 years older than you were 20, 15, 20 years older than you. So <laughs> our version of the left behind novels were the things called this present darkness and the, mm-hmm. these Frank Peretti novels. Mm-hmm. And there was a church in those novels where the antichrist lived and like <laughs> gained power. Yeah. And that was, I, I, would I shouldn't laugh. I'm just novels. imagining how that's portrayed. <laughs> okay. So the ministers wore robes, right? There was like a, it was a big church with a tall steeple in the middle of town with like a velvet red carpet down the center aisle and a choir. And, you know, uh, they would say the Lord's prayer and recite the apostles creed. And then the angels got all their power 
from this little Bible church that was outside of the like town limits, you know, like a, yeah. a little, you, yeah. you know, a country Bible <laughs> church. <clears throat> and I remember reading those when I was in college, because it's what everybody in Campus Crusader was reading, being like, that's my church. They're just like the ant, the, the church. And that's where I knew something was a little off. Yeah. But that was maybe some of my first, um, I guess, the, the first time I really rubbed up against the difference between evangelical and mainline. So my point, that's a long-winded way of saying, I grew up in a church that was, I guess you'd say was mainline, but it had Mm -hmm. some kind of evangelically type vibes. And like our youth pastor had gone to Bethel, you know, Mm -hmm. so he was an evangelical guy. Um, And I just knew very early, like starting in seventh grade, I just felt a call to ministry and Mm -hmm. knew I was going to go into ministry. So when I finally emerged from college, I went straight to Fuller Seminary. Hmm. California. Yep. Yep. In Pasadena. But um, I came out of there probably convinced that I wasn't going to be a pastor Hmm. because I didn't seem to have the type of personality that people look for in a pastor, which was um, a big hearted codependent softy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what what it takes nowadays, right? Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, and that's not me. Uh, So then um, after seminary, uh, what was I, probably 25, I spent three years working for a mission organization called YouthWorks, which you probably knew. In fact, I launched, I started YouthWorks with Hmm. uh, uh, Hmm. my old youth pastor. Hmm. I was the first executive director. and Wow. That thing grew like crazy for the first three years. And after that, um, I wish, can you hear that? No. You dang some birds. There's trumpeter swans Um. out on our lake and they're just going, (laughs) they must be mating or something because they're really going crazy. And I wish you could hear them. Um, Then I went to work at my home church for seven years uh, as the youth and young adults pastor. Uh, after that, I went to Princeton seminary for a PhD, but that was also right around the time, um, that the emerging church movement was really blowing up. I was Mm -hmm. a big part of that. So it took me a long time to finish my, my PhD, like eight years because I was writing books and speaking and I was a national coordinator of emergent village. And so emergent was a church movement or church renewal movement I was a part of that had a pretty good 10 year run. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and otherwise I've worked in Christian publishing. Uh, I did an interim gig at a church last fall. Mainly these days I write, I teach right. at Fuller seminary and you know, hustle. I'm just like, do side, <laughs> I, my whole life is a series of side hustles basically. Right. Right. And it doesn't sound in some, some ways it sounds awful, but it, but not all that bad either. You get the flexibility. Look, if you can make a living at it, I highly recommend it, but right. There's that's a big, there, yeah, there are some anxious days. I'm sure. You know I'm, I'm sure there are every day. I'm like, <laughs> did I do one thing that has the potential to make money today? <laughs> and if I've done that, I'm like, okay, I've done that. That's, that's Good. the, that's like the minimum. Right. So you're, you're raised in church and were you also raised in the outdoors as a Minnesota kid, or is that something you came upon later in life? Yeah. uh, Yes and no. So I'm talking to you from um, our family's cabin, which is um, between Lake Mille Lacs and Brainerd. Okay. And what's called kind of the Cuyuna range of Minnesota, Mm -hmm. um, just south of the towns of Deerwood and Crosby. Um, So I grew up coming here for sure. It's a lot of, we have a lot of land. We we're, when I was growing up, it was about 160 acres. Now we're at about wow. two, 275. Wow. Um, yeah, really incredibly fortunate to have this on. I'm, lo- I'm sitting on a screened in porch, looking out at a lake, the thunderstorm and the lightning is sliding past us to the North. Um, so it's interesting, you know, we had this place growing up, it was my grandparents. So I didn't come up here a ton, but I, you know, we'd be up here three, four, five times a summer. Yeah. Um, but I wasn't, we didn't hunt. We fished for sunnies. Yeah. yeah. Mainly we did like water right. skiing and tubing and stuff like that. It yeah. wasn't. And 
and man, this was back in the day. Tubing was like literally a tractor tube <laughs> and you held the ski rope. Right. And that's changed and a little. Getting that thing yeah. to plane out was not easy. I'm sure. Okay. Yeah, Behind was, a fishing boat or whatever. That was a we workout, I bet. We had like an Alumacraft with a 25 horse motor on the back. Yeah. <laughs> it's we've come a long way since then. So yes, I did stuff outside, but no, my dad was not a hunter or an angler. My mom liked to fish for crappies and sunnies. Um it so it was yes, I was I was exposed to it, but it wasn't like I wouldn't have self-identified as an outdoorsy person. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, but, but you do now, I mean, how, how did you, well, you man, I went through a huge crisis in my life. I mean, the fact is where I left off my story with you about ministry, um, my marriage came completely unglued and had, I had a very, very like two different judges said, this is the worst divorce I've ever seen, which oh, would, is not what you want a family court judge to say to you when you're no, sitting in court. No. So yeah. I had a really, really bad divorce. Oh, it, it, it damaged me personally yeah. and my, my ministry. I, I, in many ways, I kind of lost my whole career. But what it did do was it drove me outdoors. That's, I, just, I went outside and wow. it was the way I could flee all the stress. It's funny because all the all the stress in my life seemed to be centered in the city, like my lawyer's office and downtown at the court and the family justice center in, in Minneapolis and going to like parenting consultants and therapists and kids therapists and all that. It was all very urban. It, and hmm. when I went, yeah, when I went out, when I went out hunting, it was all gone behind me, you know? Um, and so I fell in love with it. And frankly, the guys I hunted with, uh, the particularly guys I pheasant hunted with, and I still do to this day, they did not care. They right. couldn't care less about what people were writing about me on the internet and about my divorce or custody, my kids or anything like that. So it was so healing for me. And even mm -hmm. I'll be, I'll be frank too. The church was not the church the church does not do well with mm. its leaders. Yep. It, the, I think a lot of churches do really well when like lay people are going yep. through strife, right? They are not good when pastors are going through strife. Yep. Nobody knew it was like, I had people say to me, literally a quote I remember was like, you are radioactive. Wow. Right this from another Christian, like leader and author and pastor. Right. Like right. I just can't, another person said, my brand can't really handle being along with your brand. I'm like, I'm a brand. That's all I am. Is I'm a brand. <laughs> now I get it. I, mean, I was an author and I was getting speaking gigs and I was trying to sell books and yeah, yeah. get quoted in the New York times and like that. I, I, I understand it, but still I was a little heartless. That's know? pretty, that's pretty. Yeah. Brutal. But the people I hunted with these guys, they didn't care. They were yeah. just like, Hey, you got a good dog, you know, you're not a great shot, which means the rest of us can, <laughs> can clean up the pheasants you miss. I'm a better shot now, but at the time I was, Dale, I was a terrible shot. Took a little while to get there. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Embarrassingly bad guys would let me, they'd be like, you get the next one. It'd just be a layup. And I'd shoot three times and miss. And I remember this one guy, Cal looking, he, he's like a, he was like a military guy from Sioux Falls. I think he was a security guard at the big hospital in Sioux Falls. I mean, this dude was like six, five. I haven't hunted with him in years, but he said this to me, we're pushing through this field. He's like, you get, you get the next shot. I've shot a lot of birds today. <laughs> so this bird gets up right in front of me, man. I mean, it was, it had a target on its back and it's just like, you know, those pheasants, they're just slow motion. They're like the slowest game bird ever. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Three misses. And he, I just remember, I'll never forget the field we were in. I could show you where we were standing. And he just looked at me and just shook his head. Didn't even say anything. <laughs> just the, just pure disappointment. Right. I was like, I really need to practice. My shooting. <laughs> well, I take it. You've, you've made some progress since then, at least from the stories you tell us. I'm glad to, whatever, whatever it took to work through that. You're, you're I've shot a lot of birds and yeah, I'm a much better shot. And you know, 
it's reps, right? Like so oh, many sure. things yeah. in life, it's yeah. reps. It's just like the more you, it's, it's like you and I could go out in the field and you could probably hear 10 different birds songs and you'd know each one and I'd know one. You know? Right. Right. So you, I mean, hunting, hunting stuck with you. It wasn't just something that you used as therapy. It's, it seems like it's your, it, I don't know, maybe it continues to be your therapy, but this is, and just listening to you talk about it and the joy that you get from it. So I mean, I, we haven't talked enough to, to discuss this, but I, I don't hunt myself, but it, I mean, you're, you're a good evangelist for the sport because. Yeah, let's great. go. I'll, I'll take you out. <laughs> right. I, I know you will. Cause I, you've never said no to anyone that's ever, you know, requested that. It seems like you're. It's funny to... because my, one of the guys I had on my podcast a few months ago is a, is a roofer okay. and <laughs> he needed some work done. I needed, sorry. I needed some work done on the side of my house. I couldn't find anybody to do it. And I just shot him just a email out of the blue. Yeah. And cause I'd gotten his name from another guy. Um, and I said, you know, Hey, would you do this? Could you ever fix patch up this hole in the back of my house in this hardy plank? And he clicked on the, the Reverend Hunter link on my email signature yeah. and he writes back and he's like, I will actually do it for free. If you'll teach me how to hunt. And like, <laughs> what I didn't tell him was I would have probably paid him to teach him how to hunt. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. Well, I got it. I got like work done on my house and I got to go hunt. Right. So I'm, a, I'm like plus two on that equate on that right. Uh, right. transaction yeah. with, with Chris. So yeah, I I'm, I'm, I'm mentoring a couple people to hunt. I'm crazy yeah. about hunting. I was just out with my wife and my mom. We were walking the dogs and I heard a Turkey gobbling and I texted my buddy across the lake. Who's, hasn't filled out his tag and is a bow hunter for Turkey. So he'll know where the Turkey is tonight. And right. I, 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 I kind of orient my life around it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, I'll take you out anytime. Well, we can, we can talk, we can talk. I'd be interested. I mean, I, I grew up around, well, I mean, my, my dad was not an outdoorsman, but my best friend in middle school and high school wasn't, you know, was kind of a hunter and his neighbor who was, you know, the three of us piled around together, his dad was a taxidermist. And it was like oh. their, his entire life, his entire house, everything was, was hunting and fishing. And so I never took it up, but I don't, you know, it's, it seemed to me like a, an all consuming hobby and I have other all consuming hobbies as it is. And like what, uh, I, well, Maybe they're compatible. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I ride, I ride bikes, I ski uh, a, a lot, and I bird watch, and I hang out with my family. You know, so it's this, so the, the bird watching is pretty compatible. You know, the other things, whatever. We'll, we'll see. Hunting is con hunting is contained. Some guys hunt year round. I mean, it's it's hard to hunt year round. Like turkey hunting is going on now. There's really nothing to hunt in the summer. Turkey, I mean, hunting in general is yeah. pretty much confined to like September, mid-September through the end of December. Yeah, yeah. But kind of before I, yeah, it's funny. Several of the guys I hunt with, they're also crazy about downhill skiing. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, we do. I do more Nordic skiing. Nordic, we yeah. do, do yeah. you know, the Berkey and all that stuff. But you, yeah. I did a lot of downhill when I was younger. But yeah. Um, I, so, I mean, you've got this this range of, of things to do in the outdoors. What What is it about hunting that, that, you know, sort of turns you on. If it's something you can narrow down to a sound. Bite. Yeah. I, I think, um, there's a couple things. One is hunting Okay. The type of hunting I, I do most, and that's pheasant hunting, upland mm -hmm. bird hunting mm -hmm. demands total concentration. Mm -hmm. Um, if you're pushing through a field, and you've got dogs and other guys with guns and you got gopher holes and you got rocks and you got, you're trying to push through a really thick cattail slough. And then all of a sudden a pheasant boom explodes in front of you and another one to your right. And then a hen shoots up to your left and you got to be, look, you can sit in a deer stand with a one, one earbud in. Yeah. And listen to an audiobook. I've done that before because you're just yeah. waiting for a white-tailed deer to wander by. Right. No, you're not calling it. You're not. I mean, maybe you've had trail cameras out and you've kind of tried to pattern the deer and 
you know, you know, you put your deer stand up and you've cut shooting lanes. It takes some prep, but there's not a ton of skill in whitetail deer hunting in the Northwoods. Yeah. You sit yeah. there, wait for a deer to walk by and you shoot it. Right. <laughs> um, dog hunting is like next level skill, but, but also there's a lot of downtime in duck hunting where you're just sitting there and nothing's flying and you're waiting, you know? Yeah. But that's in, in pheasant hunting um, and other upland bird hunting that I do like grouse. And I haven't done much beyond those two, but have all these invitations out from people who listen to the podcast. Come to, I <laughs> got one yesterday. Come shoot Bob White quail in Kansas with me or whatever, you know? You so yeah. uh, I love the, the, the demand it, it takes on you of total concentration, which I think is rare in today's world we're we're like constantly multitasking and having notification buzzes and you know bangs and little red dots on our phones that say there's more incoming incoming yeah uh so i like that and then i i have a guy i hunt with named jorge in south dakota one of my best hunting buddies and he said and he said something that made a lot of sense to me he said the thing about hunting is um, it takes all your skills and the stars must align. Mm -hmm. So in other words, it's, it's a human endeavor that takes a great deal of skill, but luck is also involved. Okay. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's guys who play, um, you know, Texas Hold'em. It's like, yeah, that. it sounds like poker. Yeah. You, you know, it's a combination of, of skill. Yeah. yeah. A combination of skill and luck. And, you know, there's some other stuff too. So, um, I think those two things, I, one thing I do this time of year is I, um, I umpire town team baseball around mm. Minnesota mm -hmm. Fun, and I love it. Um, and that's a similar to my first point. It's a similar thing that demands total concentration. Like yeah. for three hours, I have to be completely focused. I can't be, my mind can't really wander to think about yeah. Uh, the stuff I've got coming up at work or hmm. writing project, or I'm so pissed at one of my kids or something like that. Um, yeah. and again, I just think there's not much in the world right now that demands that. Let's you do that. Right. Yeah. 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 That's great. And it seems like, uh, it has become part of your, your faith experience too. And can you speak to that? Cause I think that's probably not true for every hunter, but, but hearing you talk about it, that you have, well, I don't know, religious experiences for, for back, lack of a better word as, as you're out hunting. Yeah. Is that something that, that you uh, became aware of yourself or was it, did, you know, did your background in ministry lead you to look for that? Can you elaborate on that? Honestly, I think I probably have had those experiences in spite of my theological training. <laughs> Not because there of my we go. theological that's, training. That's the question. I mean, that's what drives me is that there, there's so little room for that dialogue in Christianity, uh, and which you know led to me led me to my own challenges in my faith when I was younger, trying to fit those together. Right. So that's a different question. Maybe we come back to that. But um, well, but to just to follow that thread a little bit, I mean, I can't remember a real sermon that I've ever heard about death. Mm -hmm. I mean, sir, sure. Preachers meant talk about death and they talk about the afterlife and they talk about our, our eternal home with God, but it's all very abstract. It's usually just couched in like terrible Christian cliches mm -hmm. and euphemisms. And it's not very realistic about death. And that's what, what I think is really, um, unacceptable is how many, you know, pastors are in touch with death. Like pastors are at people's yeah. bedsides when they Constantly. die. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And nevertheless, there's so often the preaching about death is so just like abstract and removed from the reality of it. Mm -hmm. And man, when you kill a, when you kill a 200 pound, 150 pound white tailed deer and you climb down out of your stand and you walk over to it and it's still alive and it's dying in front of you because of a bullet that you shot into it. Yeah. And it's bleeding. 
and its big brown eyes with eyelashes are <laughs> this is that this is like a dividing line i think for a lot of people in hunting and fishing is like i know people who can fish for fish and they can shoot birds but they can't shoot a deer you and it's deer. Yeah. it's the eyelashes man <laughs> they can't shoot an animal with eyelashes <laughs> Well, it's just too, it just too seems too close, seems too close to us. Like it's shooting a mammal or whatever. I've learned more about death and I'm more in touch with my own mortality as a result of being a hunter than anything I learned in seminary, any sermon I've ever heard. And then I, I mean, that's just the first one that comes to mind, but I could list 10 other ways that hunting and just not just hunting, but I, I, take and lead trips in the boundary waters um mainly for pastors um Mm -hmm. to canoe with with them and there's no hunting involved in that there's some fishing usually yeah but um i think it puts us in touch with transcendence which is another thing that we don't we're really lacking everything is so imminent Mm -hmm. in the way we live our modern lives and i think you know, people who were, we might look down our noses at people who lived in the middle ages or in antiquity and thought that God made thunderstorms happen and, or angels and demons made people sick from cancer and other people get cured from cancer, whatever. And we kind of poo poo that, but they were at least aware, even if we disagree with on the details of it, with this idea that we're the we're these imminent beings and there's something bigger than us that that's some kind of transcendent reality and uh you know you're a scientist i mean science basically ruined that i mean science <laughs> science is what's killing christianity and all religion in the west it's science is about imminence it's about you know figuring things out on a material level yeah. and and giving answers to existential questions that for the last 4,000 years plus religion has answered. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I think being outside and, uh, whether it's canoeing in the boundary waters or, or being involved in the hunting experience, I find that I'm in touch with the transcendent in a way that, again, I, usually I'm not when I'm in church. Hmm. Yeah. It, it seems like we have a hard time putting word to that. And as I talk with people about it, like they'll say, I feel that, but then it, it, you know, it, it's hard, it's hard to, to, to parse out. And it, you know, as you say, science killed religion, I feel like in, in a very different way. Um, when I think about Darwin who I think was among the first people to take a really hard look at, at nature, which up to his point, everybody had kind of drawn that connection that the, the religion and, and outdoors connection was much stronger in the past. And then he, he encountered all the suffering and it just turned him off. Right. And, and that's where I'm, I'm really fascinated by, by hunting uniquely versus just going bird watching in my own life, right? Because going bird watching, I can look at these beautiful birds and it's so easy to have an emotional connection there and maybe draw that into some spiritual experience. But hunting is much more uh, real in that, in that there, yeah, there is death and, and, and that's imminent, as, as you said, that we're all going to experience that in our own lives and in others. Um, and I feel like there's something about hunting that forces you to, to, to acknowledge that. And so, you know, sorry, and I'll get to a question here in a moment, but, um, the, the discovery that nature is not as pretty as we thought it was, I think caused some of that split, right? Like let's no longer walk people down that road anymore. Cause we're afraid of what they're going to discover. Um, and it's, it seems to me that there's opportunity there to um, to put those back together, and and that's I mean that's what I'm interested in, and I feel like that's what where where you're you're working on. I don't know if you if you want to comment on that. It feels like there's this paradox between the good the good creation, God's beautiful world, and then the death and suffering that's just inherent in it, 
And with hunting, you know, you, you can, you can shoot that deer, you can feed your family. It's, it's the most wholesome, organic grass fed meat you can get. And yet you have to kill an animal to get it. Do you see it? Yeah. Yes. Yes. True. But you're also killing an animal. If you had a chicken sandwich at lunch. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Or yeah. if you're, you know, if you're having bacon at breakfast or we're all like, we're all implicated in the death of animals. Any of us, any, anybody who's a carnivore is implicated in the death of an animal. Yep. And we have so like sequestered that away and hidden that away. And I've been to a chicken kill plant and, and watch that happen. And it's not, I'll tell you, there'll be a lot more people who'd be vegetarian if they went oh, to yeah. a chicken yeah. plant. Right. Um, and yet it was something that our ancestors, they were just, our ancestors uh, were, in, they, they were in touch with death on a daily basis, yeah. whether it was grandma is dying in the, in her bedroom down the hall yeah. or I got to go kill a chicken for dinner um, or whatever the case may be, you know, like it was just part of human existence was being around death, acquainted with death all the time. And we just, that's just not even part of our lives anymore. So uh, I've never, I just don't think that that dichotomy between God's good creation and the earth, you know, the, the world that we live in is, is red in tooth and claw. Um, I think those aren't, I think those aren't in any way disconnected. I think they're completely connected. I think it's tragic that we've tried to disconnect them. And I don't know what we're going to do to get people more in touch with death and suffering in the modern world, because man, we've done a great job of, of, Mm -hmm insulating ourselves from that. Right. Right. In, in our diets and in yeah. Yeah, everything else. Yeah. No. Everything else. I mean, in the middle ages, you know, there was this thing called memento mori of like, well, it goes back to antiquity and, and uh, the Stoics where you, you've probably been to a museum and seen a painting of like uh, some fruit or whatever. And then there'd be a skull. There's just a skull on, on the shelf. You're like, mm-hmm. why is there a skull on the shelf of that Renaissance painting? Well, this is the memento mori, and in Latin it means remember your death, remember your mortality. Yep. And it was a big part of the Stoic tradition that that you would appreciate life more if, on a daily basis, you reminded that you're going to die. And Mm. my gosh, I just—I mean, you don't hear that on Sunday morning. No, you don't hear it ever, man. You don't hear it ever. It drives me crazy. I was. Just t- on this walk down the down the road, I was just talking to my wife about this guy who, a friend of mine, was like his his he he's older than me. He's like fifteen years older than me, probably. And he was telling me, oh, "I'm going to see my mom. She's undergoing all this cancer treatment. She's got a tumor." I'm like, "How old is your mom?" He goes, "Well, 91. I'm like, dude. <laughs> I said, "That's a good gr- that's a good run." Yeah, ninety one. Yeah. Uh, but man, there's, there's this to accept it, you know, like, accept it. Like, what do you think? What's the end game here? Yeah. Right. (laughs) The end game is death for all of us. Right. Death. I, so I, I, I agree. And, and yet it feels like there, you know, as you wade through scripture, it feels like, like death is somehow, in opposition to, to God's purposes, right? It's like we, somehow we're presented with, you know, an Isaiah or revelation or whatever, you know, that the lion and laying down with the lamb and there's no more viciousness. And, you know, I, I feel like we're still stuck trying to um, uh, ignore death and, 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 pretend like it's not happening and yet be in pursuit of, of some existence, whatever, whether it's metaphorical or something else that, that is some point where, where there will be no more of that. I I don't know if you have better answers for that than I do, because I'm still stuck with that. Look, I agree that, is it? Yes. I mean, it's kind of in the scripture, but it's just in general, it's just the 
single incentive that religion has always used with people is like, we can give you eternal life. Somehow, somehow you will live on after this material existence. So join our religion and, you know, and Christianity does that more than any. Yeah. Maybe Christianity and Islam, I think more than any other religions like that is the key and fundamental promise of those religions. And the truth is, again, not to, you know, not to cast aspersions on all of you scientists, but (laughs) science is basically a lot of people in the West to question that idea that there's life after death or that one religion yep. has the, 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 the key to give you life after death. I mean, of course there's this passage in Matthew, you know, where Jesus says this to Peter, you're Peter on this, on this rock, I'll build my church. What, whatever I hear the keys to the church, whatever you bind in heaven will bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever yep. you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. And for years, for two centuries to two millennia, the church has thrived on that authority. Like we have, we have that authority mm-hmm. to basically pass out eternal life. Like, you know, <laughs> you, and you engage with come to church, take the sacraments, whatever d- different version of Christianity promised or uh, offer. Then you, if you did those things and you get this promise at the end and science has really undermined that for in a lot of people's minds. Yep. Uh, and which is, is the, I personally think it's the single biggest challenge for religion in the West today is that a lot of people just, they're like, yeah, eternal life. I don't think so. Yeah. Just not plausible. Yeah. Right. It doesn't yeah. seem plausible to a lot of people that the philosopher who's done the most. How does that, how does that work? Come on. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a, there's a, philosopher named Charles Taylor, who's wrote the single most important book on this called A Secular Age. And in it, you know, he basically, he uses the term in disenchantment that all of our forebears lived in an enchanted world. It's what I already talked about with gods and demons and thunderstorms and the rain and the drought and whatever. And we no longer think if you sacrifice a goat in the spring that the gods will rain on your fields and you'll have a bountiful harvest in the fall. We don't think it works like that anymore. Right. Um, so we live in this disenchanted world. Uh, it seems much more arbitrary, whether this year it's a flood year, next year it's a drought year. <laughs> People try to tell me there's patterns, but I, you know, are there, who knows uh, that really undercuts religion's authority. Yeah. Yep, I agree. Well, and there is that dichotomy. It's like either the answers from the textbook or the answers from the pastor or the scripture or whatever, but the very little attempt to to see overlap in in kind of a both both and uh, approach to to those. And I I wrestled with that my, myself, you know, trying to wade through Psalm 104 or whatever it might be, and and how how is God present in the you know, the, 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 what's going on outside my window. And I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there, which maybe leads us to those classes where you're taking future pastors or or clergymen or whatever into the boundary waters. Can you, I'd love to hear about their experiences uh, in Northern Minnesota and uh, if they're comfortable engaging in these discussions and how does that experience, you know, change their view of whatever of God or of ministry. I'm just fascinated. I would love to sit on your shoulder and listen in on those, on those trips. Can you tell me about the experience? Well, you can imagine, uh, you know, pastors ironically are terrible at observing a Sabbath, Mm -hmm. whether it's a weekly Sabbath or, an annual Sabbath or whatever pastors are terrible at it. Pastors, you know, going back to early in our conversation, the people who tend to be rewarded in ministry settings are tend to be boundaryless, codependent, 
big hearted, loving people, not people like me, not <laughs> opinionated jerks, but codependent people who struggle with boundaries. Yeah. So just firstly to get them away. Yeah. And there, you know, it's, I don't know if you've ever taken people in the boundary waters. They're like, are you really cell phones don't work? Yeah. I'm like, really? <laughs> they're not going to. Yeah. Really? I mean, they're like, but we're not going to Siberia or whatever. I'm like, no, but there's no cell phones. I mean, unfortunately, they just put a tower at the end of the Gunflint Trail. Oh, you're kidding. Really? Yeah. You know, that's such bad. a bummer. But <laughs> anyway, you can. So, you know, and you occasionally get a signal from Canada or whatever. But I tell people don't even bring them. And you yeah. know what? I don't bring a Garmin in reach. Because huh. I want to like be out there without a net. Yep. There's something Which, about that being uncomfortable. There's something about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can't push a button and have, um, you know, the Ely fire department flying and rescue you, but, hmm. uh, it takes them a, a little while to get, uh, to get their mind off of, whatever it is at church or whatever yeah. it is at home, that's grating on them. Uh, and, and of course the other thing to be totally honest, most pastors are terrible at physical fitness. <laughs> yeah. I believe that they yep. don't care. They don't take just like they have no boundaries yep. emotionally. They don't care for themselves physically. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you paddle for the first day for six hours and man, your shoulders are burning. Yeah. You got blisters on your hands. It's like, it's, it's a, it wakes you up to how out of shape you are. And sure. I, I mean, I'm after I'm talking to you, I'm actually having a zoom this afternoon with the pastors. I'm taking the boundary waters this August. Oh. And one of the things I'm going to say to them is like, you need to start at least go start walking. Right. Yep. And, and it wouldn't hurt it's be to be physically challenging. Yeah. It wouldn't hurt to throw a bunch of your seminary books. You never read anymore in a backpack and carry <laughs> those, you know, right. You portage a canoe on your shoulders or a 40 or 50 pound Duluth pack. Um, whoo, baby, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, it's, it takes some exertion. And yep. so those are a couple of things that and people love it. You know, they absolutely love it. They I'm love sure. going a whole day without seeing other human beings. Um, you know, jumping in an ice cold lake. Uh, I mean, there's a hundred, hundred things they love about it. Um, yeah. And there's a, we just, man, there's just so little danger. Mm. And look, going to the boundary waters, canoeing in the boundary waters for four or five days is a pretty low danger yeah. thing as far as wilderness areas go there's yeah yeah less risk but, it's, but it seems dangerous yeah to, to them because yeah you could drown you could break your ankle you're going to get absolutely hammered by black flies and mosquitoes <laughs> um you're going to get you know but we've we've denuded modern life of so much risk mm -hmm that uh to take people out somewhere like that be like there's some risk involved in this like you read the waiver you signed it it's like broken bones and death you know this kind of thing yeah uh, so that's another aspect that i think is great i think you know modern people should be exposed to more risk to be to be honest look there's all sorts of risks like the biggest risk we i mean i drove up here today at you know 75 80 miles an hour for two and a half hours <laughs> that's way riskier than going to the boundary waters really sure. yep. really but yep. we you know the our minds play tricks on us and lead us to believe that everything's totally safe right right uh, i wonder if we could transition a little bit to to gun culture and and hunting but maybe not gun culture but the the, the culture of hunting so i mean I, I i work in the world of conservation uh you know wildlife and it's and it feels to me like um within a hunting community there's both great interest in conservation uh, but also maybe 
less interest in in what some would call environmentalism. And is there, I don't know if you can tease that apart, if there's, if those are viewed as, as two different worlds, you know, conserving game species versus, versus bigger picture environmental issues. Um, and what, what's behind, maybe it's just my own perception, maybe tell me if it's not there, but the, viewing those as in two different circles. Yeah, I think sadly you're probably right. I mean, most uh, most of the people, most of the guys I hunt with, tend to be pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. I think hunting in general tends to be pretty conservative. Yeah. I I pitched a show a couple of years ago to the Outdoor Channel, and they were like, "Great idea, not a chance." <laughs> They're like, "Our." audience is very conservative yeah they don't want to see you out there butchering a goat with a queer woman like that's yeah. that was my pilot episode yeah and uh they didn't go for it because they just have a very conservative constituency yeah. um so yeah hunters are extraordinary conservationists and in fact you know because of the lacy act like all the the, the amount of money from hunting licenses, ammo sales, fishing tackle, gun sales, that all goes toward, that's all, there's tariffs on all that that goes toward uh, conservation. And it's why, you know, the, the DNR in our state and, and similar organizations, agencies in other states are so well-funded yeah. um, is, is from all that kind of money. And, you know, it's funny, there is some talk now in the hunting community about the, you know, hikers, mountain bikers, mm -hmm. all these people who use public land that hunters and anglers have paid for, yeah. but they don't pay to you. They, you don't pay to go on the Cuyuna bike trail here, you know, sure. six miles North of me. Yeah. Um, you don't pay to go bird watching on a, a waterfowl management area, wildlife management area, or, a, or a, you know, yes. so, but, We've paid for that. Hunters have paid for that. And if I told you, I, I can't even tell you the amount of money I spend per year on just hunting licenses alone, because I don't want to face that fact myself. Of how much <laughs> I, spend. I buy multiple licenses in multiple States. You I'm know, sure. I'm, next week I'm going to Wyoming for turkeys hmm. and it was like a hundred bucks plus the gas and, you know, yeah. we're camping out and, the food that will be, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a hunters do a lot in, in that regard. There's some, some pride in that, right. That, that they oh, are largely okay. responsible for all of that. You, you yep. can't go to a hunter's pint night for any, whether it's a Delta waterfowl, you know, ducks unlimited pheasants forever, backcountry hunters and anglers. That's the first thing you're going to hear yeah. is, Oh, we, we're the, we're the guys who fund all, you know, this or that or the other thing. Yeah. Absolutely. When it comes to larger environmental issues, it is tricky. You know, I, I spent a lot of time in South Dakota in the fall and I just see it's just corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, corn and soybeans, as far as the eye can see. Yep. And one year this field we hunt is corn and the next year it's soybeans. And it's just like clockwork. The following year it'll be corn. Then it'll right. be soybeans. Um, and when I'll say to these guys, like, Oh man, you know, this stupid ethanol, like ethanol is not great for the environment. <laughs> right. It saves us a little money on our gas, but it's kind of a boondoggle for yeah, corn farmers. Right. Yeah. They'll be like, yeah, but like, what if we planted, what, what if these fields were planted with peas with sunflower? Like, I'm not getting radical here. I'm not <laughs> telling them they should plant hemp or something. I'm just like, how about we just diversify it a little bit right. with some yeah. other crops? Boy, not with the not with corn prices right now. Right. Yeah. yeah. You just can't. You can't overcome that uh, with, with. So the, the bigger environmental issues always are trumped by the by capitalism, sadly, in, in the, the circles I travel in. I don't find guys who like deny that the climate is changing because when you hunt, like if you spend time um, outdoors, 
you just, you can't, if you hunt in the same spot every year, you cannot help but notice it. And like our climate is changing. Who's responsible? What's responsible? Can we change it? Is this just how it's always been? Has it always been changing? Was it changing for like Neolithic hunters who were, you know, throwing spears? Yeah, maybe the same, maybe the same. What, what I get most frustrated by is like, I, the, here's the one type of hunter I get most frustrated with the ones who want to extirpate wolves mm-hmm. because they want to shoot a deer every year. Right. Right. And that I don't get that. I don't get, I don't get how you're, you are a predator, but you're like, I don't want any, com- I don't want any predators competing with me. Right. right. I just want to be able to shoot. I want to go to my, de- I want to go to my deer stand and shoot a big fat white tail every november and right when i get there and i see i'm sitting in my deer stand and i see wolves walk by god it makes me mad i mean you i read in outdoor journals like there's letters to the editor every week like too many wolves not enough deer like well this this is part of seeing yourself as part of a bigger system that a lot of hunter that some old school hunters struggle to see which i think maybe goes to your point a little bit about why there are some hunters that maybe don't aren't great at the bigger environmental picture, you know? Well, and I, I don't even, it sounds like a criticism and I don't, it probably comes off that way. I, I don't want it to come off that way, but I, it just seems like hunters do so much good for conservation and are aware of it and proud of it, but are, and I think this is, some of it is, tied to politics probably, but, you know, are, are wanting to, to draw a, a line between what's worth conserving, uh, you know, whatever white-tailed deer and walleye or whatever it might be uh, versus, you know, so in my world of, of looking after songbirds, that that's just not of interest to them. It's not, if it's, you know, it's not game and it's, uh, you know, not worth, not worth our money and time. Uh, and let's make sure that our, our, uh, the, the fruits of the, of the hunting licenses and whatnot are, are used to, to keep those industries going, as opposed to looking after the, the well-being of the whole area. And I, so I think there's opportunity there because I, it, it feels to me like hunting culture is, is increasingly aware of the value of having wolves in the Northwoods or of, you know, that songbirds are an indicator for, for what's going on with the, the forest that the deer are dependent on. Um, and so I, I, I don't know if you have thoughts about, about what's, if that's genuine progress or if it's just my perception or, or how to um, thread that needle and, and yeah. bring those cultures together. I do see some progress, uh, particularly the, the conservation group, two groups I'm most connected to our pheasants forever and backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, and neither of those are the most like deer. I th- I'd say big game hunters, like whitetail deer hunters tend to be kind of more old school, maybe more conservative and things like yeah. that. BHA is probably the, among the most progressive mm-hmm. of the conservation groups <laughs> yeah. and pheasants forever. I, I find great. They have a very large constituency of both conservatives and liberals and they actually, they're like you. You read uh, Pheasants Forever Journal, which, which um, I write for and 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 receive. There's always something in there about pollinators. Mm-hmm. Every 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 issue. Yeah, yeah. So they're selling seed, you know, for um, pheasant habitat. Like if you own private property and you want pheasants on your land this seed do the seed and like this seed also has pollinators coming through yeah. um and you know i've talked to people who are convinced that the reason pheasant numbers are down and these are pheasant hunters and people in that those kind of circles they're convinced pheasant numbers are down because roundup ready corn hmm. means that there's quite simply just less bugs and grubs in fields. And hmm. that's a major source of protein for pheasant chicks. And, you know, with less of that stuff around, yeah. um, you're going to have less pheasants surviving in the spring. 
Right, right. Um, So I am seeing the needle move on stuff like that. And similar, tell me, you're going to, again, have to tell me, there's, what's the songbird up here um, that, like, if I could show on our land, we could get some kind of easement. Mm. What is it? The golden wing warbler? Maybe that's it. Perhaps. I don't know if that's like a, a rare bird that gets it. Yeah. Like I've worked with our DNR forester up here and he's like, well, if we could show that this one kind of bird is coming through here, that would help us get state funding and we could do more of this and that. Cause we're constantly, you know, <laughs> yep. trying to improve our forest, planting trees that the deer eat every, we want more wolves because the deer eat all the trees we plant. <laughs> Can't get a tree to get. I'm not kidding, man. It, I believe and it. a long winter, like this last winter, by the end of the winter, it's crazy. We cage, we cage hundreds and hundreds of white and red pine every mm-hmm. fall. Sure. Yeah. And the deer literally figure out how to push these cages over and eat the and, yeah. pine trees. Yep. I believe it. So it's, it's maddening more wolves, please. Um, yeah. Aldo yeah, but, had something to say about that. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, it, it, this has been great conversation. It probably could go on and on. It's worth, worth a second round at some point in the future, but this yeah. has been uh, uh, really interesting to, to talk. I, I um, look forward to uh, perhaps having you back on at some point to, to dig into to this in the future. But I, you know, I know you talked about writing for pheasants forever. And I know that you, you've got another, a few other writing projects. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, besides your, your, your podcast, what else are you working on? Well, uh, I've written a book about kind of the stuff I told you about, about the moving from the kind of walking out of the church and walking into the woods. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been working on that book on and off for years and yeah, it hasn't been published yet, but maybe someday it will. Um, and I've written a couple novels that I'm working on editing and revising. My wife and I just did a, a joint venture for a magazine called the Northerly, huh. um, where she's a photographer. So I wrote about four seasons in the life of our family cabin and she yeah. shot photos for that. So you can find that if you just look on like Instagram for the Northerly magazine, you'll, okay. you'll see it. Um, cool. but y'all yeah, have a piece in, the uh, in, in the winter issue of pheasants forever journal yep. about a bird I shot that was then, um, mounted by a friend of mine, um, a taxidermist and what else? I don't know, you know, going to the outdoor writers association of America in Wyoming next week. And that's where I'll be doing some turkey hunting with my buddy mark norquist who runs modern carnivore which is a great uh, oh sure great website it got full a great instagram account for people to follow and he, he teaches classes on you know how to how to butcher a deer and how to go on your first duck hunt and stuff like that so i'm sure we'll cook up some we'll be sitting in a truck together for a long time so we'll cook up some stuff together <laughs> some more projects yeah good well, hey, I appreciate your, you know, your your voice in this uh, in this arena, trying to get people thinking a little bit more about the the role of of hunting and the outdoors, and you know, playing some role in our in our faith. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of fruit there that's that's uh, ripe for harvest. That's kind of an awful metaphor, but um, <laughs> now you yeah. sound like an evangelist. I know, I know. I was just I'm like, oh, that's no, I shouldn't have said that, but. Uh, but, but it's there. It's there, whatever we want to call it. Um, I uh, saw my buddy, my buddy, uh, Greg Boyd, you know, Greg Boyd, you must uh-huh. know that name. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I was going to ask you about Greg. Cause his, well, I know he's talked about going vegan and I, his, you know, his view on eschatology is, is somewhat bound up in my question around <laughs> the lion and the lamb and whatnot, but yeah, he's got a very developed eschatology. <laughs> Well, he tweeted something. He tweeted, I just, I can't, because I've made a vow to my wife, I'm not just going to troll people on Twitter anymore. But Greg wrote something. He was promoting something, some new ministry of their church. He's like, if you need help with your walk, this might be the place for you. And I wanted to tweet back and be like, boy, if you're, if you're an adult and you still don't know how to walk, 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know if really going to church is, a, you know, it's just right. a, it's yeah, just a yeah, the Christian jargon is the Christian jargon. I, but yeah. I'm like, I'm not going to troll my dear friend, Greg Boyd, <laughs> even though he's got a great sense of humor. I'm not, right. I'm just not going to do it because somebody will take it the wrong way and be offended. Right. Blah, right. blah, blah. So anyway, <laughs> we'll go out and we'll just, we'll, we'll just harvest as many whatever souls yeah. or pheasants yeah right whatever, whichever you want we'll do it okay <laughs> sounds good some of both be a big harvest all right <laughs> well great talking with you tony thanks thanks for having me yeah. on yep thanks for listening to the disciple science podcast at disciple science we believe that integrating science and christian faith can inspire a fuller knowledge of god we produce this podcast and our videos to help you connect with God through God's creation. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit. We're based in St. Paul, Minnesota. If you want to support us, you can give at our website at disciplescience.com. As always, I want to thank Caleb Davis for producing this episode and for composing our theme music. I'm Dale. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again soon.